Jesus Christ. He is one to be learned. Yes, Jesus is one to be encountered. That's true. And not only on a one-time basis, but to have a relationship with. Jesus is one that you ought to draw close to, not only for salvation, but for sanctification. Jesus is one that you should draw close to, one that you should learn, one that you should encounter, one that you should know, not only to have a relationship, which ought to be sustaining and continuous, but Jesus is one that you ought to encounter, not just for a product, sanctification, for example. Jesus is one that you ought to draw close to and learn and come to know because he's worthy. If ever there was something worth learning for its own merits, one might suggest the arts, one might suggest math in all of its complexity. I say math, there are maths, plural. One might suggest the learning of the maths, plural, for their complexities and their beauty and for their constructive utility and the worthiness of something like the maths. Someone might suggest logic for all of its empirical value and for all of its contemplative value, for all of its productive prudential wisdom that logic and clear thinking might be able to give you. But above all of that, above all of that, in fact, the thing that's going to frame those things in their proper place is going to be coming to know Jesus. Again, if you gained nothing from coming to know Jesus, it would still stand that Jesus is worthy of being pursued strictly because he is worthy. One should learn Jesus because Jesus is just remarkable. Everyone has to follow someone. Everyone has to put their focus on someone. Many people, thinking that they're doing themselves the courtesy of focusing on themselves, actually bow to Satan and study Satan. They just become a work study. <laughs> you know, they follow Satan and learn what Satan is like by imitating him and becoming so much like him that they can think his thoughts after him. Well, there's one that's not worth following. But Jesus, on the other hand, he is worthy of being followed. I'm going to not only suggest that to be the case, I'm going to say you need to chase Christ with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You need to learn Christ. You know, if you have a relationship with a spouse, wife or a husband, you have decided that that is a person that you are going to study. You're going to learn that person. You are going to become 
the student of that person's ways. You're going to know what they're like when they get up in the morning, what they're like when they go to bed at night, what they're like when they are healthy and chipper and strong and doing well and find life favorable. You're going to find out what that person is like when they are ill. Maybe just the short affliction of a flu or a, uh, a stomach bug or something like that. Or what they're like when they face those final terminal moments because they have stage 4 cancer or on down the line. You're going to study that person. You're going to learn that person. You've taken a vow in public before God about for to this person with your life. Now I would say that's good. But there is still better. That vow that comes through the covenant, the Christian covenant, that vow that you will be unified with Jesus, that he initiates in coming after us, I would say that vow, you should offer yourself to him and you should become such a student of his ways that you know what Jesus is like when you are healthy and strong and vibrant and all is going favorably for you. And that you know what Jesus is like when you are ill, whether it's just something short like a, an influenza or a stomach bug, or whether it's something more treacherous, something that will put you face-to-face -face with mortality itself, that you should study this Jesus and see what he is like, whatever your condition, whatever your situation, and you will find him faithful, and you will find him worthy of being studied on his own right, regardless of what he gives you, and he gives he is a wonderful provider. He gives. He is a generous Lord. He gives. He not only will give you the opportunity to serve in the kingdom, which is an enormous privilege, but he will also come and shoulder the load with you and sometimes for you. He is a good master. He is generous. He does give. But even if he never did one more thing ever, he has done more than enough for us to worship him through all eternity in that Christ has laid down his life to rescue us from ourselves, from the idols, from sin, from death, from the deserved wrath of God. He has already done everything, finished product, completed enough for us to be rescued, redeemed, saved, and He has done enough to merit our worship. God is a good God. Our Lord is a good Lord, 
and we would do well to put our focus and our emphasis on Him, to love Him. The great thing about it is, is that it is not, it is not just a uh, short-circuited false start, right? Jesus did everything, zap, done, complete, short-circuited, false start, no need for you, no use for you. There is a continuous reciprocity that goes on with God. He is the initiator. He will always outdo us. He will amplify whatever it is that we do. But it is not as though what you do is in vain or without meaning or without purpose. What you do is good. And thereby, uh, I have to be careful. Whatever you do for the Lord's sake, whatever you do through the Spirit. Now, please, I, I took it that that would be understood, but I can see that someone might stumble over that. So allow me to add that clarity. Whatever you do for the Lord, whatever you do for the kingdom, whatever you do appropriately, wisely, prayerfully, through love, the love of God, and apply that for the sake of Jesus, for the name of Jesus, to His renown, for His glory. There, I think you have it now. Whatever it is that you do, Jesus will meet you in it, and that reciprocity of He will love you, and you will love Him, and He will love you, and you will love Him. And it is in that welcoming circle where you are invited to love Christ more. That is where we will find ourselves the most productive for the kingdom. And we will see that what we do is not just simply in vain. It's not just carrying on, as it were. Jesus, if you will study him, if you will learn him, if you will dive into him deeper and still deeper, finding those depths and the riches of the relationship with Christ, it'll pay dividends. It'll be rewarding. And again, again, if nothing more happens than just that you get to offer yourself to him more and more, then honestly, that is enough. And that really is enough. I want to take us back to Ephesians, where we are talking about the operation of the Holy Spirit now. And I want to show you uh, a few different things. Uh, The thing is, is there are hundreds of sermons that could be preached out of this text. There are several very hearty strands that are woven through this text. I don't have time to go through all of those. I can only point to just a few of them and then move on and go to something else. Uh, we really could get, uh, I, don't, I don't mean to say bogged down. That's not it. 
but we could slow down and hit things with such depth and richness that we never look at anything besides the book of Ephesians. And the thing is, is that I honestly, um, I, I feel as though uh, there's more to be seen. And I, in some sense, want to show you things from a 50,000 foot flyover and not get uh, bound to the minutiae. But I, I do want to dig into a couple of points, just enough to try to make uh, not only the point of Scripture, but the point that um, uh, I would like to bring out of this, and that is that um, it, it's, it's worthy of our study, to be sure. Uh, but I'll, I'll show you as we run into some of these things that there's more to this than just meets the eye. You can read over the top of it and, and miss several things. Maybe some of this uh, you'll already have seen and already know. I'm going to start us at verse 17 of chapter 4, remembering that we are chiefly concerned with Jesus Christ having sent the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit operation through us, in the, in the kingdom, in the covenant, as his people, as his ambassadors, as his disciples, his followers. And the thing is, is that he does not select us as those who are um, already developed wise, uh, you know, that the, we're these incredible boxes of uh, giftedness and, and so forth. God takes us from low places. God comes and selects a people for himself out of the common population of treasonous wretches. Okay? God is a loving and a merciful God. He could just simply call on his angels or something like that and just simply work out his will through his angels, uh, I suppose. That's not how he chose to do it. Instead, he takes a treacherous, treasonous, wretched people and he says, I'm going to reach into that mess, and I'm going to give an invitation to people that they can come and stand before me as guilty. And then have the opportunity to watch my mercy as I pour out on them lavishly through the shed blood of Jesus, the unique Son of God, pour out on them this covenant of forgiveness covenant of mercy, covenant of grace, a covenant where they can then have me, says God, where they can be filled with my Holy Spirit, says God, and be made to be family, and as family, go to work on the family business. And the family business is rulership expressed in myriad ways rulership, myriad ways, priesthood, in myriad ways, okay? So, we start at verse 17, 
after Paul has illustrated being filled with the Spirit, being at work for the sake of Jesus, and having this unity, this bondedness, not only with Jesus, but in Jesus, bondedness to every other covenant member as well. Uh, those who are believers, those who call on the name of Jesus Christ appropriately and properly. So verse 17 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord. Paul is telling us something. Something that's worth him saying it simply because, you know, Paul is telling us this is something that I would tell you even if I was the only one telling you, I would make sure that you knew this. But I'm not the only one telling you. You see, Jesus has already said this, so I'm telling you, and I'm also coming along behind or beside Jesus to say, listen to Jesus. He said this, and I'm telling you this too, because Jesus said it, but because it's worth being said. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk. So peripateo, uh, the word for walk, doesn't just simply mean to be ambulatory, right? Stumping around on two legs, left, right, left, right, left, right. Uh, rather, this word walk, it, it's actually your manner of life, okay? So he's, when he says peripateo, he's, he's talking about, or walk, uh, he's not just talking about the way that you get from point A to point B, um, stepping out uh, your, your path. This is your, your manner of life, the way that you live. So I affirm together with the Lord, this is what I'm saying, that you live in a manner that is not in keeping with the way that the Gentiles also live their lives in, in that manner, in that way. And then he tells us, so that's almost entirely action, okay? The, the manner of one's life is what one observes in their actions. They do what they do, this is their manner of life. Uh, the way that they do it, this is their manner of life. The way that you do what you do, your manner of life. And what he then does is he takes a sharp angle, uh, and it is such a sharp angle that um, sometimes we just don't see it at all. So what I mean by a sharp angle is, um, so you've seen people on uh, perhaps ice skates or even roller skates where they are skating forward, yes, and then on their skates, suddenly they twist, and now they are facing the opposite direction, and they are skating backwards, um, and still their momentum is carrying them in one direction or another, what have you, okay? So he makes a very sharp angle, and if you watch hockey, this is a great way of um, not only receiving the puck and playing the puck, but also getting prepared to turn and uh, go the opposite direction to launch off in a new in a new way. Enough with the illustration. Who cares about my illustration? Maybe that illustration did nothing for you. Cast it to the flames. The illustration is not what I'm interested in. Here's what he says. This I say, I affirm it together with the Lord. The Lord's already said this. What am I saying? That you have a manner of life that is no longer in keeping with the manner of life that the Gentiles did. Flip around. 
And now, now that you are flipped around, momentum is still carrying you one direction, but you're facing the other. And now, impulse. Change now your momentum, thrust, and go the new forward. That you have a change of mind. We're about to go into an area of the text. The whole thing wraps around your mind, your thinking, your understanding, okay? So no longer have this manner of life, no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Okay, so he's now uh, taking us from just strictly mental properties, and the heart is, yes, uh, yes an emotional seat, but uh, it is the governing disposition of our soul. So, uh, they were excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance, right? Just an, an unawareness, um, but in many ways, they were dumb on purpose, uh, intentionally ignorant. This ignorance that they carried with them because of the hardness of their heart. So why were they ignorant? Why didn't they know? It was because their hearts were hard. So their hearts were governing that they would have to be ignorant. And because they were ignorant, they had their understanding darkened. And because their understanding was darkened, they were futile in their thinking. Their minds were expressing futility, okay? But that's not the way that it should be, okay? And they, having become callous, and he, of course, uses an illustration from perhaps your hands or even your feet, where uh, it's insensate. Calluses are insensate. You can, you can cut them away. Uh, you can poke them with a needle. You can light a lighter to them. Uh, and you, that's one of the great things about calluses is that uh, if you've worked with your hands, you know that they become uh, toughened. You can actually do more uh, with a calloused hand in terms of uh, fiddle with something that would be damaging. But if you um, move that over to your mind, then it actually becomes a, um, a hindrance. Okay? A... It, it actually is uh, the, the opposite of a good thing. So calluses on your hand, those are good. You've been working, you have calluses on your hand, you're not tender, you're not stopped short. Calluses on your mind, you are stopped before you can even get started. Okay, Having become callous in their heart, callous in their mind, uh, insensate, uh, not having the uh, acuity, the acumen, the aptitude, uh, lacking those things. They have a callous 
for a brain or a callus for a heart, uh, that's n of no benefit at all, right? Some properties are fantastic. You want those things. Uh, a really mobile ankle, you want that, okay? You do. Uh, you may think, oh, no, you don't want to roll your ankle. Um, no, having a good, supple, smooth operating ankle uh, or wrist or um, elbow or spine, right? Joints should be fluid and mobile. Good quality to have in a, in a, uh, a joint, right? But then you have these other joints. They're, they're gumphos joints. I know that sounds like silliness already. But gumphos joints are the sockets where your teeth rest in your gums. You know what? Those should not be supple. They should not be able to move. <laughs> okay? You really don't want that. You want those to be firm. Uh, the, uh, the sutures in your skull where your parietal bones meet... Uh, even with your frontal bone or perhaps your occipital bone uh, up in your skull, you know the where the bone where the plates meet, those are called joints. But you know what? Those joints you don't want them uh, to be moving around. You sure don't want them to be supple, um, flimsy in that way. So just because something is good in one place doesn't mean that it's good in every place. Here's an example of this. Calluses. Calluses are good. But not, not for your mind. And not for your heart. So, having become callous, they have given themselves over to sensuality. They have no sensitivity. So they're given over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Impurity and greediness are faculties of the mind, properties of the heart. These are things that are soulish dispositions and are not, are not worthy of your Christian attention. Verse 20 says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Do you remember me starting off today's program talking about learning Christ, studying Christ in such a way, knowing him in such a covenantal way, having vowed yourself to this one, that you become a student of the person that you are avowed to? You become a student of that one, and you study them. And you come to know them in deeper and deeper ways. You find out who they are, what they want, what they like, what they are like, what they do, how they do it. And then, in the field of uh, Christianity, coming to learn Christ, you learn that he is worthy of imitation in all things. Worthy of imitation. Some things you simply cannot imitate. You cannot die on the cross for someone else to rescue them from their sin and from death. You can't do that. But other things you can imitate. 
loving others to the uttermost. That you can do. And he even commanded us to do. Love one another as I have loved you. That's what he said. You have not learned Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old man. That's what it says. Uh, maybe some people, some of your translations, it may say like the old self or something like that. Here's what you need to know. We're talking about Adam, the old man. That's what the word Adam means. Adam is man. That in reference to your former manner of life, your walk, your peripateo, your, but now being more direct, your manner of life, you lay aside the old man, you lay aside Adam, he used to be your head, Adam and its Adamic flesh and its Adamic ways, that used to be the way that we did it, but we are saying no to that king. We are in rebellion to that king. If you can only follow one Lord and you have to reject and rebel against every other king, then let it be that you say amen to the Lord Jesus and that you go in rebellion against all other kings. Adam used to be the head of mankind, and still is the head of mankind for those who have not taken on the headship of Jesus. The sad thing about that is, is that there's an immediate swap. If you are under the headship of Adam, please understand that he surrendered to the, the Satan, in that he was tempted to uh, be like God the way the devil told him to do it. Eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't worry about it. God knows that you'll be like him. You won't die. It'll be okay. You do it your way, and you be like God. Well, the way that you do it your way is by doing it the devil's way, and you submit to him. That's what Adam did. So, uh, it is really not enough to be under the headship of Adam, because Adam immediately hands you off to Satan. So, you lay aside the old man. You lay aside the Adamic, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. The lusts of deceit. You will not surely die. This is how you be like God. God knows that if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. And there was built up a lust of deceit, a lust of deceit, and that you be renewed instead. This is what Paul is saying here. Don't you hang out with that former manner of life. Don't you hang out with the old self, the old man. Uh, lay aside Adam. Intentionally lay aside Adam. Rebel which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you instead now, instead, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, okay, so it says be renewed in the spirit of your mind, but I think that a perhaps more appropriate reading of that would be that you be renewed. 
in the Spirit be renewed. And then, if it read this way, see this is the difference for just different languages here. So if what we read was that you be renewed in the Spirit in your mind, be renewed, let the Holy Spirit be the renewer, be renewed by way of the Holy Spirit in your mind. Right? If it read that way, that would be a dative construction. In your mind. What it actually is, is a genitive construction. Okay? But uh, the, the dative part is the spirit. So imagine a sphere or a, a, an orb or a globe or a ball or something. It doesn't have to be. It can be a box. I don't... Whatever. If you go into the box, that's dative. I, this is really rough, by the way. This is kind of the quick and dirty version. If there are people out there that are Greek scholars, I, I know I'm, I'm trying to make this really simple, okay? So you have a box or a sphere or a ball or something. You go into it. That's dative. You go into it. Genitive is when you come out of the box, right? So the genitive of source, out of the tribe of Judah, right? From the womb comes the baby, uh, th that kind of thing. So this is a, uh, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I think another way of reading that, a better way of reading it, a more appropriate way of reading that would be uh, to kind of paraphrase it, that you be renewed by way of the spirit out of your mind. The problem with the phrase out of your mind in English is that in English out of your mind means that you're nutty. You're bonkers, right? You've you've flipped your lid, you've slipped a clutch, you lost your glue. Your glue's come undone or something, right? So that's why in order for us in English to kind of get it, I'm going to turn it around and say in your mind, be renewed uh, by way of the spirit in your mind, but it's actually from or out of, you know, here's your mind and then there's renewal that pours forth from, out of your mind. Be renewed in the spirit or by way of the spirit and then let that pour out of your mind and put on, now we're talking about new creation, right? Put on the new self, that is to say the new man, or the new Adam. Who's the new Adam? Jesus is, the second Adam, okay? Put on the new Adam, Jesus, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, okay? So truth becomes a really big deal as we move our way in further. But put on. So realize, again, we're talking about Adam. Remember, he was naked, right? And then when he sinned, he had to be clothed um, by God with an animal, uh, a sacrifice of sorts, okay? And this uh, sacrifice, and the reason why I say of sorts is because it's God who apparently does the slaying, and it is God who takes the skins and dresses the people, uh, it's not the other way around, <clears throat> where people are offering sacrifice to the Lord. So, that's different. Adam, now, you, you are supposed to take off 
the old man. You're supposed to take off that garment, that sacrifice, that. I've heard so many people say, well, it had to have been a sheep. I understand what you're saying, but please understand that Adam is not a hero. Adam may have been clothed in um, serpent skin, something unclean. He was covered, but he was still unclean, Adam was, um, in the extended sense. Remember, Adam broke covenant with God. Point of this is, is that it is this new garment, the new Adam. We take off the old, unclean man. We put on the new man, the new Adam. We put on the new where we find um, cleanness. We put on the new where we find redemption. Now, I don't know, and nobody else does either, okay? I don't know what the sacrifice was. That What was it that God used to clothe the person? It may have been sheep. I don't know. I don't want to like make any theological points there. My point is to say, we don't know. Whatever it is that Adam was dressed in, we need to take that off, and we need to put on Christ. We need to put on the new Adam. So, just as Adam, he was naked, and what we need to do is we need to take off that garment that we were covered with. We need to take it off. That means getting naked, right? You'll see yourself in that Adamic situation where, uh-oh, now I'm naked. And uh, I, I can't be naked, right? That was, Adam had a problem. He understood that he was unclean. He understood that he was naked. He understood there's a problem here in that I'm naked and I need to be covered. So what you do is you take off the old man and then you immediately, you don't fill around, you put on the new man, the new Adam, the new self. Just, if I'm not making this clear, which is perfectly possible that I'm not making this clear, just consider it for a little while. We're talking about the old Adam and the new Adam. The old Adam was naked, the old Adam tried to cover himself, didn't work. He had to be taken out of that and recovered. However, even then, the old Adam was not somehow just, you know, Adam is not a hero. This is, this is a problem that people have. People think of Adam as, he was one of the original heroes. Um, the, the LDS, uh, they, they have, um, through Joseph Smith, they have Adam actually falling upwards, uh, making a good showing of his treachery, uh, falling, but in a good way, upwards. Uh, no, false, wrong. Take off the old Adam. Take off the old man. Take off the old self. Put it aside. Get rid of it. Shake it off. Put on the new self. Put on the new man. Put on the new Adam. The second Adam. Put on Jesus, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. This, <clears throat> this, uh, this, garment of sorts that we get to put on, of new creation, this new creation, which is in the likeness of God, that has been created in righteousness and in holiness and in truth. So, again, if you stop and think about it, in Genesis, 
So fashion has always tr troubled me. I, I've thought of fashion as being really vain version of art. I love art in its many forms. And fashion, I do think that there's a place for it. But boy, I think vanity has worked its way into that expression of art. But originally, fashion, you know, mm, allow for fashion to be what it is. Originally, the whole business of putting on the garments, I think, has to be seen in the light of uh, New Testament revelation so that we can see that the whole point of being clothed is actually an anticipation, an expectation of the resurrection. That we have the old self and that we put on to ourselves in order to cover what is naked, to cover what is wanting, to cover what is shameful. And I think that it is an illustration of change. It's an illustration of putting upon oneself. And I think that it will find its fulfillment in resurrection. And that one of the reasons why people express themselves in their clothing, one of the reasons why people uh, go to uh, great lengths to try to disguise certain things about themselves in their dress or present certain things in their dress or accentuate certain things in their dress is precisely because uh, this is an anticipation of when we truly put on the immortal, when we put on the new, the renewed, and we have the new expression of the new self. Okay, enough said about that. Therefore, now back into Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Therefore, therefore what? Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Okay? Put on the new self. Put on the new, the new Adam, which is in the likeness of... Not that Jesus is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness. That's not what that says. Put on the, the garment quality, the appropriated uh, quality, condition. Okay, that. The new then you that has been put on, that is being now outwardly expressed out of your mind, remember uh, that phrase, that, okay, that construct, uh, that is what has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, because of that, laying aside falsehood, right? Uh, you lay aside the old self. You lay aside the old Adam. You lay aside falsehood. Speak truth because of that, because of that. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth with uh, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, he says, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Now, how many times have I heard that bit right there preached as being some kind of a passive thing? 
it's almost like there's, um, oh goodness, like it's the virtue of being a wuss. And that's not what it's saying, okay? Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Like you're supposed to be some kind of a, a sniveling passive weenie or something here. You know, like, um, you know, don't give the devil an opportunity so you don't want to be angry and you don't want to, you know, make sure you talk about these things. Maybe you and your wife are having an argument and you guys got to, you got to work it out is what you got to do. You got to you know, work it out together. Maybe you and your neighbor are having a, a real hard go of it and you guys, you got to work it out. Okay. All right. You do. You got to work it out. That's true. All right. Especially if it's your wife or if, if it's your neighbor. I mean, these are people that you're supposed to be able to trust and get along with. And yeah, okay, okay. That's just not what this verse is really about. Therefore, because of what we just went through, and I've, I've gone through it at too much length already. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry. Okay, it says be angry. Go ahead. <laughs> be, be angry. It's all right. Uh, and the the way that it is um, uh, said in the Old Testament is, uh, it's, uh, it's chapter 4, Psalm 4. Um, the way that it is there is go ahead and have the emotions, the kind of emotions that are so deep and racking and even violent that they make you quake in yourself. That, that you have a... Uh, there, there are certain nuclei in your brain that as these things get charged up and they have this emotional response, you have a visceral response, and out of that comes this uh, shaking thing that happens. You get so angry that you shake, or even frightened that you shake, or whatever. That's what it says, okay? Be angry. And yet, don't sin, okay? So, firstly, what it's saying is be angry. It's okay to be angry. And this is not modern psychology. Well, they're emotions, and emotions are not wrong. They just are. And some emotions are just going to be more whatever. What he's saying is be angry. It's okay to be angry. Get hopping mad. Okay? Get get mad. But with that anger, don't sin. And immediately, I know that people are listening to that, and they go, okay, so then what that means is that you shut it down. You go, oh, and you become passive. And you, oh, I'm so mad, but I can't really, oh, so I better just breathe deep, start over. That's not what it's saying, okay? Uh, be angry and, and do something about it, but whatever you do, don't let it be sin. Do something with your anger, but don't let it be sin. And, and do it. Get on it. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't just sit around and wait. And when it says, do not give the devil an opportunity, it doesn't mean, if you're angry, that gives the devil an opportunity. You're angry? Ooh, you've let the devil in by being angry. No. There were times where Jesus was all kinds of stirred up, and he was angry. That's not right. What it means is, if you're going to be angry, you better hop on it and do something about it. 
If you're going to be angry at somebody and it's because they've done something wrong, you get on them. You let them know. An illustration of this is going to be in the book of Numbers, chapter 25. I want to show you guys this. Numbers, chapter 25. By the way, I'll tell you from the beginning, God approves. God approves, okay? So, uh, the people are at Peor, chapter 25 of the book of Numbers. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Shouldn't do that. For they invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people, the Jewish people, ate and bowed down to their, not good, to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry. <gasps> Who's angry? The Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then, behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the congregation and of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. He was not going to let the sun go down on his anger. He was going to get up and do something about it right now, okay? When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body, so the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000 people. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I approve. That was the right thing to do. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him, Phinehas, my covenant of peace. And it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Uh-huh. Look at there. That is an example of what it is that we are talking about here, okay? So the word that is used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, for be angry... Para orgegismo, uh, par, I'm not doing it well, par orgismos, par orgismos. That word shows up in the Septuagint four times. It replaces, in the Septuagint, it replaces the Hebrew word kaaz. And it shows up in 1 Kings chapter 15, 30. 2 Kings chapter 23, 26. Nehemiah chapter 9, 18. And Jeremiah 21, verse 5. In every one of those instances, so para orgi... I did it again. Par orgismos. I want to say para. It's not para. It's par. Par orgismos. Par orgismos. 
This is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. In the Old Testament, it is used in four places, and in each instance, it is God. It is God who has this kind of anger. It is God who has this kind of anger. And now you are being invited into this, okay? Now be careful how you use this. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. I am certain, positive, that I have had indignation. I am not sure that I have had righteous indignation. What you are being told is not to be passive, okay? You are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You are to be aggressive about taking off the old self, the old Adam, and you put on the new self. You put it on, the one that's been created in righteousness and holiness of truth, and therefore you aggressively lay aside falsehood. You speak truth with each other, each one of you to his neighbor, because we're all members of one another. And when there is something wrong, be angry and do something about it. Don't sin by just sitting on it. Don't sin. This is where you can commit the sin of tolerance. Tolerance is touted as being, you got to be more tolerant. You got to be more tolerant. This is a misunderstanding. You can commit the sin of tolerance if you're not very careful. Be angry. If something's wrong, you be angry. You be very angry. You be par orgismos angry, like God. And don't you sin in it. You don't let the sun go down on your anger. You hop up like Phineas and you get after it. You do business with the sin. You run a javelin through it and you kill it dead. Don't you, you know, be, don't make nice with the serpent. Okay? Don't make nice with the snake. Don't do that. You get aggressive. You show yourself dedicated to the Lord, and you do violence, you be ruthless with that sin, especially if you find it in yourself, okay? And that's how you don't give the devil an opportunity. He who steals, do not steal any longer. Rather, you have to perform labor. You have to work with your own hands, doing what is good, so that you'll have something to share with the one who is in need. Don't allow any of this junk so that it grieves the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed in the day of redemption. Don't do it. Bless the Lord. Follow after Him. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, only a word for, that is good for edification, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice out of you. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus has also forgiven you. Be aggressive, deal with it, and then don't point it unnecessarily at one another. Give grace to one another. Christianity, we're supposed to take over the world, and we're supposed to be aggressive with it. And if we're not careful about the way that we fight these battles, we will fight one another. And that's inappropriate. We do business with sin, and we fight the good fight. And that's well-placed faith.